We're continuing our series called God Moves here two more Sundays. This Palm Sunday, and then we'll look at God moving out of the tomb. I want to invite the, uh, before I forget and get too far in the sermon, to invite the children to go to Children's Church with Miss Cindy. We've got to get a, somebody that can do that more on time, huh? Next week, we're looking at God moves out of the tomb on Easter Sunday. But for the meantime, we're watching how God moves toward a new kingdom today. Has anybody ever heard the saying, unrealistic expectations are resentments waiting to happen? You ever heard that saying? Unrealistic expectations are resentments waiting to happen. I think the, the key here is when we see unrealistic, because expectations are, are good things. Expectations are, are needed things. We, we have expectations in our relationships. We have expectations in our marriages, expectations in parenting. We have expectations at work if, you know, of, of our, those we work with as colleagues or if we maybe supervise folks, we have folks that we have expectations of, and, and our supervisors have expectations of us. But when those expectations become unrealistic, that's where we see trouble coming, and that's where we see resentment building up. And it was the same way in the first century as it is in the 21st century. We're going to see this morning in our text that, that the people of the text that we're reading this morning had expectations of Jesus. And then Jesus didn't quite always meet them. And similarly, I think we have some expectations of Jesus, and Jesus doesn't always meet our expectations. Our text this morning is from the Gospel of Luke again, chapter 19, and it's beginning in verse 29. Hear the word of the Lord, friends. As Jesus came to Bethpage in Bethany on the Mount of Olives, he gave two disciples a task. He said, go into the village over there, and, and when you enter it, you will find tied up there a colt that no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If someone asks, why are you untying it? Just say, its master needs it. Those, those who had been sent found it exactly as he said. As they were untying the colt, its owners said to him, why are you untying the colt? And they replied, its master needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their clothes on the colt, and lifted Jesus onto it. As Jesus rode along, they spread their clothes on the road. As Jesus approached the road leading down from the Mount of Olives, the whole throng of his disciples began rejoicing. They praised God with a loud voice because all of the, the mighty things they had seen and they said, blessings on the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace, on heaven, peace in heaven and glory on the highest heavens. Some of the Pharisees from the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, scold your disciples, tell them to stop. And he answered them, I tell you, if, if they were silent, the stones would shout. Friends, this is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So on this Sunday that we've come to call Palm Sunday or, or sometimes Passion Sunday, it just happens that in this first century day, there are two royal entries happening at just about the same time. There's one royal entry of Jesus, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, fulfilling the prophecy of old, coming in to Jerusalem riding on a young donkey, a colt, a colt that's never been ridden, signifying peace in the kingdom. With, with people singing songs, simple songs, rejoicing and honoring Jesus as the king, willingly and joyfully throwing their clothes in his path as a signal and symbol of their submission to him. And simultaneously then, on, on the western front 
of the old city of Jerusalem. Opposite where Jesus was coming in is the entry of Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate would, would live mostly in the, in the city of Caesarea by the sea, but he would come at times of great feasts like Passover in order to make sure that Jerusalem was peaceful as thousands and thousands of people descended on the city to celebrate these great feast days. New Testament scholars Marcus Borg and John Dominic Crossan say, describe the scene like this. Imagine the imperial procession arrival in the city. A visual, great visual display of imperial power. Cavalry on horses, foot soldiers, leather armor, helmets, weapons, banners, golden eagles mounted on poles, sun glinting on metal and gold. The sounds of marching feet, the creaking of leather, the clinking of bridles, the beating of drums, the swirling of dust, the eyes of the silent onlookers, some who are curious, some awed, and some resentful. Pilate's procession, Pilate's procession displayed not only an imperial power, but also a Roman imperial theology. According to this theology, the emperor was not simply the ruler of Rome, but the son of God. It began with the greatest of emperors, Augustus, who ruled Rome from 31 BCE to 14 CE. Inscriptions refer to him as the son of God, the Lord, and the Savior, one who brought peace on earth. His successors continued to bear divine titles, including Tiberius, emperor from 14 to 37 CE, and thus the emperor during this time of Jesus' public activity. For Rome's Jewish subjects, Pilate's procession from the West embodied not only a rival social order, but a rival theology, a rival thinking about God. Suddenly, the Palm Sunday story that we know so well becomes much more than a simple, fun parade of children and youth with palm branches and, and maybe a donkey. It becomes a counter-procession, or maybe even a public demonstration. You might even say that it's, it's a parody of the imperial procession, with Jesus a stark contrast, illustrating once again the difference between the kingdoms of this world and the kingdom of heaven. One procession comes from the west, Caesarea by the sea. The other from the east, the Mount of Olives. Pilate rides on a war horse. Jesus rides on a donkey. Pilate's surrounded by soldiers carrying spears and shields. Jesus is surrounded by his disciples and women and children carrying palm branches and coats. Pilate is greeted with trumpet blasts, and, and all are reminded that he comes in the name of Caesar. Jesus is greeted with simple songs, reminding us that he comes in the name of the Lord. Two very different kinds of entries into Jerusalem. And in these entries, and in this entry of Jesus, there's several crowds of people that have expectations for this guy named Jesus. First, we have the, the, the crowds that are lining the streets as Jesus enters from the east. They're lining the streets with palm branches and coats and, and waving and shouting and singing, throwing their coats in submission along the path as, as, as if making a red carpet entry for him. And they had an expectation. These were the, the Israelite people who, who've been oppressed for years, this time lately, by the Roman Empire. And they're actively waiting for the prophecy of the coming Messiah to come true. And even though Luke doesn't tell us about this prophecy, as some of the other gospel writers do, 
These crowds knew the prophecy. They had grown up and had been taught the prophecy in the synagogues. And they knew that this Messiah was to come riding on the donkey. And they knew the appropriate songs to be singing. They knew there would be waving of palms and throwing of coats. They were ready for this Messiah to come. These people following Jesus, the the disciples that were closest to him and and those who had come to follow him in the last couple days and weeks as as he raised Lazarus from the dead, the, the crowd was growing and the tension was growing. They wanted this king to come, this Messiah to come, and to overthrow the Roman government using power and might and military strength to take back their country. On the other hand, the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, the ones that were usually at most odds with Jesus, they have some different expectations. They want Jesus just to tone it down, take control of your disciples. You know, some of the Pharisees are even might be followers of Jesus, and they just want him to tone it down, stay alive. Let's see what comes of this. Others of the Pharisees are, are very much against Jesus and, and have been colluding together to kill him. Getting ready to approach Judas Iscariot in a couple of days to betray Jesus and hand him over. The Pharisees, they, they want life just to kind of continue on as it is. They found a way to, to live in peace in Rome and, and not rock the boat too much. They just want status quo. Now, the Romans, led by Pontius Pilate and others, they're trying to deliver the great Pax Romana, where we keep the whole kingdom, the whole Roman Empire, peaceful, that allows people to move in the kingdom without worry, at least male Roman citizens. Everyone else has something to worry about. But in order to keep the peace, in order to achieve Pax Romana, means that you have to keep your thumb on all of your subjects, including the people of Jerusalem and Israel. You see, Pax Romana was was good, kind of like when we reflect on the good old days, maybe of the 1950s and and the United States flourishing after World War II. Well, Pax Romana, just like the good old days in the 50s, wasn't good old days for everybody. The subjects were kept in place, and peace was achieved by great fear and force through the Romans. And that's how they wanted it to be. So Jesus, in the first century, is, is not meeting these groups' expectations. And they all began to build up resentment for Jesus And by the end of this week, as we'll experience on Friday, the growing resentment leads to his death. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, that in the 21st century, we also have some expectations of Jesus. Many times our Jesus, our thought of Jesus, doesn't always meet our expectations, just like the first century. Maybe we find ourselves in thinking like the crowds. The crowds that want Jesus to overthrow our oppressors and to free us from the problems of our lives. Whatever they might be, we all have issues we'd like Jesus to take care of. And in fact, we'd like him to do it in our time frame, in the way we'd like him to do it. kind of when we think of Jesus like a vending machine, like, like maybe we did in high school. I know nobody in this room okay, did this, but when you didn't study for the test or do any of the homework preparing for the test, but you're in the test room and you say, Jesus, if you could just help me pass the test. Actually, could you help me get a C? Well, maybe a B. And we choose the vending machine and we pull the lever hoping for that prayer to come true. I think if we're honest, we still do that in in parts of our own lives today. 
Lord, help my relationship with my significant other heal, even though I'm not willing to go and apologize or to say that I was wrong or to, to help in any way. We want things, Jesus, to, to fix things the way we want them to do in the time frame we want them to be done. Maybe we find ourselves like the religious leaders of the day, like we, we don't want Jesus to rock the boats too much. You know, just everything's kind of good. We found a way to function together, Jesus, you know. We want you to free, thing, free us from our problems, but, but we fear the repercussions of what might happen if we rock the boat too much. You know, Jesus, we're kind of cool with this whole thing. We come to church, and, you know, we're even okay when we have to come at 10, 15 in a couple weeks. We're not real happy about that, but we'll still come. Okay, but, you know, don't ask me to step out and to serve in, in family promise. I mean, that, that's getting the boat a little too rocky. I'm not comfortable there. Or dinner church, or, oh, you want me to come on that work day, or join a small group. Okay, now you're asking too much, Jesus. It's getting too, too rocky in our boat. Sometimes, like the Pharisees, we want things just to stay, stay calm, stay cool. We figured out a way to work in our life without stretching ourselves too much, and things are pretty good. Life is good. Maybe we find ourselves like the Romans, and we have some power and control over our lives, and, and Jesus is sometimes a threat to our control. I, I can kind of relate to this. I, I, like to, I like to have my life under control. Sometimes I feel that slipping out of my fingers when, when Jesus is calling me to do something different or more that I may not really want to do. feel like you know, giving Jesus control of some things that I'd like to hold on to and control. Some things about my life and the lives of others around me that I like to have just so. Because, you know, Jesus, I know how this should be ordered. And, and yeah, you don't know everything, Jesus, I, but just keep it together here. I think if we're honest, we, we might find ourselves somewhere in one of those groups or, or in and out of those groups at different times in our lives. And so we have expectations of Jesus, and, and maybe they're unrealistic expectations, and, and eventually maybe it grows in some resentment in our own lives. Resentment of Jesus, resentment of the church, resentment of our faith. But you know, the interesting part of the other side of this coin is Jesus has some expectations, and we don't always meet Jesus' expectations. And the natural reaction in the kingdom of this world would be for Jesus to build up resentment when we don't meet expectations, right? Right? But that's not how this king leads. That's not how this king loves. When we don't meet the expectations of Jesus, he loves us unconditionally anyways, regardless of where we are and what we've done. There's some stark contrast between the entry of Pilate, the great leader and ruler over Jerusalem and the entry of Jesus. But there's one more that we didn't touch on. There's two more verses that we often don't connect to the triumphal entry of Jesus. And in my Bible, it's, it's ironically, you have to turn the page to get there. Verse 41 and 42 say, that as Jesus came to the city and observed it, he wept over it. He said, if only you knew on this of all days the things that lead to peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Friends, Pilate, the ruler of this world, didn't come in, into Jerusalem and weep over the people and weep over that city. But Jesus, the king 
of a heavenly kingdom, wept for his people, and continues to weep for his people today. Because Jesus' kingdom, this kingdom we've been singing about all morning, is a kingdom of love and peace and grace. It's it's a kingdom filled with love and peace where the last are first and the first are last. It's an upside-down kingdom from the world's perspective. But God's kingdom is coming. And and in fact, we're told that God's kingdom is at hand and is, is already here. We pray that prayer every single week. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're saying, Jesus, bring your kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. And then we reflect on that weekly of how do we see God moving? How do we see God's kingdom on earth already in place? God's kingdom is coming and his fact is already here. And and the question that we need to wrestle with today and this week as we think about Holy Week and, and move from this rejoicing of Palm Sunday through great servitude of Monday, Thursday, and Jesus' death on the cross on Friday, and the silent, the silence of Saturday, as we're waiting for Resurrection Day. The question we need to wrestle with is, will we continue to bridle Jesus with unrealistic expectations to satisfy our needs? Or will we see God moving toward a new kind of kingdom, See him moving toward a new kind of kingdom and join him in that place. Amen? Amen. Friends, would you stand and sing as we close our time of worship, reflecting on this love of Jesus?
friends, let's leave this place singing and rejoicing of that love and, and sharing and continuing this, this royal procession into God's kingdom. Share that love with our, our friends and neighbors and colleagues and family, ushering in a new kind of kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. Go from this place in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, singing of the King of kings and the Lord of lords, Jesus the Messiah. Amen. Amen. Amen.